I just want you to know that I get a lot of answers to that question. What are you looking for in a church? Especially, it is one of the questions uh, I ask every time we have a welcome to the family or what's known as a membership class. The next one is coming up on November 20th. That announcement did not get in. It's good to be king. So I gave the announcement, okay? And there's a sign up in the back. So, uh, uh, and this would be a very good time because um, when we get to the point of uh, voting on our new pastor, uh, that is a member's count. Not that we don't take input, but we're only allowed to count as a congregationally governed church uh, members who do that, okay? Well, let me just tell you some of the answers I get as I go around the room and what are you looking for in a church? What is it that's really important to you? And first and most often is mentioned biblical teaching. Uh, I Also here, I love the friendliness. Uh, I'm looking for uh, attachments to people. Uh, many say, I'm looking for people like me in the same stage of life. Uh, others are saying, I'm looking for ministries to my children. I can endure just about any pastor, uh, <clears throat> but my children can't, okay? Uh, others, the style of music. And uh, this one is really good. I'm looking for the smartest, most charismatic, best preaching, best looking pastor in town. I really miss those people, you know. It's, <clears throat> sorry they didn't stay around, and I can't for the life of me figure out why. Now, what am I looking for in a church? I'm glad you asked that question. What I'm looking for in a church is a people who are hungry to follow Jesus Christ. I realize we will have seasons uh, I, I realize that sometimes we're more eager than others. I realize sometimes the circumstances of our lives uh, are a new, you might say, a new uh, uh, opportunity to follow Jesus, but we wish we didn't have that circumstance. But I'm looking for people who are hungry to follow Christ and are willing to admit, I haven't got it all figured out yet. So how do you know you're in a church like that? How do you know that you're in a church where the people are eager to be followers of Jesus and willing to admit they don't have it all figured out yet? Well, the best thing we can do is look at a living example. Now, this one's only about 2,000 years old. Probably occurred in 49 or 50 AD. Uh, it was founded by Paul and his companions. Uh, Paul, he came to this city after uh, being terribly treated in Philippi. And about a hundred miles away, or four day, a five days walk, uh, he lands in this place called Thessalonica. Now, why did he stop in Thessalonica? Because he passed, as, as uh, Acts chapter 17 tells us, he passed several other towns but didn't stay there. He goes to Thessalonica and he stays there. And the answer is there's a synagogue there. And his first duty is to teach the Jews and find those Jews who are willing to say that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. And in in this city called Thessalonica, um, he just doesn't find Jews, but he finds in the synagogue a number of uh, what were called God-fearers, Gentiles, Greeks, who are drawn to the one God, the God of heaven. And they're drawn to the righteous lifestyle they see the Jews living. 
So he preaches the gospel there in that town, and he finds some people are, uh, uh, some of the uh, people in the synagogue have been waiting for this all of their lives. The Messiah has come. The one that we have been waiting for, that we have been promised, he has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, whom we call Christ. Well, uh, it turns out that in that synagogue, not everybody is happy to hear that. So there are some jealous Jews, probably the current leaders, um, and uh, they, uh, they take another turn. But those who do respond are several Jews and several Greeks. We know one of them is a community leader named Jason. And then it says this, several prominent women also. In other words, several female community, uh, well-known leaders of that community also turn to Jesus Christ and begin to follow him. Well, uh, the jealous Jews, probably the leaders of the synagogue, go to to a bunch of lowlifes in the community who lie that Paul is teaching that Jesus is king instead of Caesar. And... uh, and they, you might say, traded their integrity to get a little more power or keep their power for a little longer. And so uh, the, the event is, is they go looking for Paul to take him to City Hall, have him arrested and thrown out of town. They cannot find Paul or Timothy or Silas, but they do find this Jason, this community leader, and they take him. And here's what they say when they get here. This is a great phrase. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. These men who turned the world upside down have now come here. Now, by turning the world upside down, and that's exactly what it means in the Greek, understand that uh, Paul and his companions had only been in Philippi in all of Europe. That was their first landing. But now they're turning the world upside down by going to their second city. So obviously news... Travels fast, even without texting. So the crowd is agitated. Jason is taken, uh, you might say, captive. Presented before the magistrates. He has to post bond, and then it all dies down. Well, we believe that Paul probably stayed just a little bit longer. And now, though, he's only meeting with Christians and staying out of the synagogue. But even then, they have to escort him out of town to a city named Berea. And in Berea, they're far more receptive in the synagogue. But unfortunately, the community is less receptive, so he has to leave there too. Now, you might say, you know, is starting a riot the real way to plant a church successfully? And the answer would be, of course not. Of course not. Because there's just turmoil everywhere. But Paul can't seem to avoid that. And understand that anyone who wants a good relationship with their community, as well as a good relationship with God and with one another, uh, it may not work out that well with the community if you have a good relationship with God and with one another. And so Paul is forced to leave. He continues his journey. He gets down to Corinth. And once he's been there, it's now been three or four months He has this concern. Here is a church born in adversity, born in turmoil. There's persecution, and I haven't had any news about how it's going. 
So I'm going to send Timothy back. They won't recognize him. And maybe he can give me a report. We are in this series called Foundations. And in this series where we're looking at this passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we have to go back to the focus of this. It's we have an amazing God. But the amazing God often uses very common people whom he calls disciples. And he carries out his plan, not always through the miraculous, but instead through normal men and women who have turned to Jesus and are following him. So Paul, though he's involved only for a few weeks and has to leave, he sends back Timothy and he's waiting for Timothy's report. It might have been several other weeks before Timothy could get back. And as Timothy comes back, he comes back with a good report. He says these young believers are carrying on. And that is exactly what this first chapter, talking about what is a, you know, what is a model of a, dis- of a disciple-making fellowship or a, a disciple-making church, what does it look like? He comes back and as Paul writes, he says, you are my model. You are the church that I'm going to tell others about, but it looks like I'm too late, as I'll get to it in just a bit. So I begin with verses 1 and 2. Paul has been out of touch. Now he understands that though he's gone, God's spirit is right in the middle. God's spirit never left. And so he writes it this way. To the church, I'm going to say, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always thank God for you, mentioning you in our prayers. We always thank God for you, mentioning you in our prayers. The news that comes from Timothy makes him thank God that these followers are continuing to follow Jesus in that city, even though it may still be an irritable situation. So when they pray for these believers... It is Thanksgiving. Let me ask. Some of you have been in several churches in your life. How often does Thanksgiving come up for your church? All the time? Some of the time? How often do you be, how often are you thanking God for the followers of Jesus Christ and the impact maybe they're having on you? Do you pray for the churches you attend or do you evaluate them? Paul is hearing the news, and he gives thanks, and there's many reasons, and the next seven verses sort of spell those out. So now we go to verse 3. He says, we continue to remember, remember you before uh, your God and Father, the, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's facets For Thanksgiving, it's not just, I'm thankful, though there's no evidence why I should be thankful. There's facets of it. I'm thankful for this, and I'm thankful for this, and I'm thankful for this. And here is the evidence. And it's three words that we are very familiar with. Faith, love, and hope. And most of you memorize the other way from 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love, because the greatest of these is love, and you save the the best for last. But here, he goes through a list of faith, love, and hope. And this is what he says. I see this evidence in you, and as I write you from Corinth, to you, to you who are following Jesus in Thessalonica, your faith has meant work. 
Your faith is attached to the visible work that you were doing. It is visible in the deeds, probably first and foremost in the way they treat one another. They are not just a church of observers or spectators or watchers, or they're not a church of long-range planners but doing nothing now. Their faith is at work now. And then he gets more specific about their, you know, their work, you might say, because their toil or labor is an evidence of love for God, using that word agape type of love. Now, we go from work to, uh, uh, to the word labor or toil, which is meant to be a wearisome type of work. Now, what's the difference? I go to work many days a week. I sit in my study. I, I open books. I read them. And um, I can do some of the work in Greek and a very little in Hebrew. But when I do it, I'm, I'm a happy camper. That's not hard for me. It's really quite easy. I met yesterday a guy who pours concrete for a living. That is wearisome for me. But if I asked him, do you want to do Greek and Hebrew with me? <laughs> of course not. We all have things that we say it's taking us out of our comfort zone, our experience zone, and it is just hard work. And this is what is happening here. Their love meant that they were toiling hard. Probably part of that is because they were in an, an unwelcoming atmosphere there in that city. So it is this, this term, your love for God, your love for one another resembles Jesus' love for the Father and Jesus' love for you as he went to his cross. It is a self-sacrificing love. That is why it is toil or labor. It is the sacrificing love that Jesus makes for his church through his death on the cross. You see, love is a verb and love will have cost. And they also have hope. And that hope is usually tied to the return of Jesus Christ to take his followers home with him. And so he says, you have hope, and it is, uh, it is uh, tied to their endurance. I love this from uh, the first Bible that I ever owned, or remember owning, and it's, um, it's, it's the Phillips translation, which is even hard to find these days. And he says this, we are always thankful as we pray for you all, for we never forget that your faith has meant solid achievement work. Your love has meant hard work, toilsome work, and the hope that you have in our Lord Jesus Christ means sheer, dogged endurance in the life that you live before God, the Father of us all. Sheer, dogged endurance. Don't you? I love that. See, I, I'm more of an endurance guy. I'm not a, I'm not a burster. I just grip my teeth and walk through it. And uh, so I love the word endurance. I don't love the word sprint. Okay. Well, that is how he says, I look at you and I see faith, love, and hope. And it's not just these qualities, but these qualities are tied to obvious achievements that are going on. These are the things that Timothy was reporting. Now, can I tell you that I live a very shallow life most of my week? By that, uh, uh, you, you say, well, how's your week? And I might tell you, well, I worked this many hours this week. 
wow, you really work hard. I didn't say I work hard. I just worked this many hours this week. Pretty shallow when you think about it. Or I might uh, tell you uh, something like, uh, uh, this week I wrote a check for a charity and it was this much money. Well, why? Well, let's not talk about why. Let's talk about how much. You see, understanding our inner motivations is, can be a lot more difficult than understanding the, the, the physical, material, uh, scheduling things that we do. For each of these things that are being done, it is their work, their labor, their endurance are tied to the inner motivations of faith, love, and hope. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, now abide these things. In other words, they will, they will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I've never received an honor from God about how many hours I put in that week. And I won't in heaven. I can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Here they are affirm not just for what they achieved, but for what was behind it. Faith, hope, and love all tied to Christ Jesus whom they were following. So that's the first evidence, you know, evidence that he mentions in those, in those passages. And it goes on because then he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because the gospel came to you not simply with words. Here he's talking about their ministry when they arrived but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. The next evidence, as we look at those verses, is the effect that the good news had upon them. They are loved by God. They understand they are chosen by God, and they're being changed or transformed by God. They are different than when they were before the gospel came to them. They hear about Jesus from Paul... And, and and something different begins to happen to them. So what is it about Paul? And I want to say this very carefully. And I am not defending myself. And I'm not trying to tear down other people as I say this. We live, and we've just gone through a, a political season, and it's almost over, uh, where we, people are being judged by many things, but among those is... How does he or she come across? Is he or she likable? Um, what about that shrill tone? Or what about the fact that he or she is always talking about himself? Uh, you, you know, you, you hear those things, and those are all true on the human level. And, and we've heard a lot about that, haven't we? But nowhere here, when the gospel is presented, does it talk about... How about the tone of his voice? Did he speak as he spoke the gospel of Jesus Christ, letting it come out like Darth Vader? Jason, Jesus is your savior. No, he doesn't do that. Or does he talk about the wonderful oration and the way he puts sentences together and, and the vocabulary? No. He speaks the truth about Jesus to them in just an ordinary way. And Paul often said, in fact, there was proof of this as people fell asleep as he preached, 
Um, now, Paul preached too long. Just know that. We can all agree with that. But people still fell asleep. And uh, so it wasn't in their oration or in their tone, but it, the words that are used, or as we came to you, we gave you the truth, but it was more than words because it came with power. And by that, I think it's talking about both human and spiritual power with the Holy Spirit, the spiritual power, and with deep conviction. In other words, we believe this at the core of our being. This is us. We cannot tell you about us without telling you about Jesus. Um, There used to be invitations coming to me, uh, asking me to take part in what we'd call a seminar on the religions of the world. And this has happened at our high school. It's happened at certain forums in the community, as well as at colleges and uh, Certain professors call me. I don't know how they get my name. Uh, uh, um, But uh, they call me and say, will you take part in this? And when I do, I have to understand that we're having a Buddhist and a Jew and an atheist and Zoroastrian. And it goes on and on and on, and you'll be one. Meaning, you're just one of all the world's religions. And what we're trying to bring across in this intellectual atmosphere is that Christianity is just like everything else. So we want the core basic principles shared. They're sharing my personal, they want me to share my personal faith on an intellectual plane. Well, um, I'll tell you how I get uninvited, okay, almost every time. I ask, well, can I put my focus on who Jesus is, not just the founder of the world's fastest growing religion, but what he claims to be? You see, he's not just the founder of a religion. He's the founder of the universe and holds it together, Colossians chapter 1. He was sent to earth for a mission. The mission was that he would do for mankind what mankind could never do for himself, become savior of all of humanity who would turn to him. That his death was not an execution, but his death was a substitution for the sins of humanity. More than that, his entombment was just temporary. It wasn't grave robbers, but it was the Father, God himself, who raised him to life into a new body. And that's a new body that we will share with him when he comes back for us. So if I can share those things, click. They don't click, but they say, no, you have to be a little more. And I get that because they want to do it on an intellectual plane. They want it to sound like, hey, they're all the same. There's, you know, it all merges into one. No, it all merges into Jesus eventually. So, this faith in Jesus, I find that this faith in Jesus has restored to me a relationship with God and restored to me the reason that I'm a human being, so that I could have that relationship. More than that, it has helped me discover the purpose of my life. 
So it's not just the fact that I go and sit somewhere on a Sunday morning, or nor is it the fact that I prepare messages. It's the fact that this is the very core. And I am at my most human. I'm at my most uh, highly uh, planned intention when I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, these, these new believers were impressed with the power, the Holy Spirit, and the deep conviction. And they weren't just impressed with it so they believed, but they understood we are hearing here more than words. And the conduct of these Paul, Silas, and Timothy, this team that came to them, has a direct effect that goes beyond the words, and it's explained here. He says, there's a transforming response that occurred in you, not just through your belief, but the way that you began to live. In verses 6 and 7, it says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Some of you are afraid to put those two together. I get it. You'll say, don't copy me, copy Jesus. Well, all they knew of Jesus was Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They could go nowhere else. The issue of authenticity and integrity, they just assumed that these messengers uh, who would be just like Jesus. Now, they probably discovered they're not quite, but man, are they different than certainly the priesthood in this town that worships false gods. So, in essence, they become imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and by becoming imitators of the Lord Jesus himself. So they take on the power, they take on the filling of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and and they take on the deep conviction that these three men brought to that city. And as these men hear and live with these men, they become like these men because these men are the only Christians they know. And they like what they see. Are you proud that you've imitated others? I am. I'm extremely proud that I've imitated others. Let me just give you three things that uh, that I've learned from others, and sometimes I have to go back and learn them again, okay? But... Uh, I learned from one that I will honor God by how much I give away, not how much I accumulate. And so when I hear this person is very famous because he is a gazillionaire, who cares? Well, the world cares, doesn't it? But essentially, does God care? No, because God's going to measure by how much is given. Not just in money, but every part of our lives. Because that's what Jesus does when he comes to earth. Uh, I, I have a, 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 another friend who was a minister. And he told me several times before uh, I, I uh, took on a pastor to another church. He said, you know, here are some of the situations I've faced where people have come to me and told me what a terrible teacher I am. And I went, to your face? I get it behind your back, but to your face. He goes, no, right to my face. And I said, well, what do you do? He says, I've learned to say this between God and me. I will not let someone's criticism steal my joy of following Jesus Christ. I will not let someone's criticism steal my joy 
of following Jesus. How'd that work? Well, it's getting better. You know, he's a human. He's now in heaven. But I must admit, of all the pastors I spend time with, he's got to be the most joyful. So I think it worked pretty well. Um, I've listened to other pastors tell me how much time it puts, it takes to put together good messages. And, 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 I, and I go, wow, that's a lot of time. And they say, well, that's what it's like. You gotta go back to the passage. You get, you gotta study what the passage says. You gotta, you gotta come out with what it says, not just in, in, in your, uh, in, in your language, but the original language, making sure they're the same. And this is how much it takes. And I've imitated their example. Whose example do you imitate? And are others imitating you? Whose example do you imitate and what have you imitated? Don't be ashamed that you learned it from others. That's how God works. It's not the only way he works. But if, believe me, friends, if you think that, okay, I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to let God speak to me. And I'm going to let God speak to me just out of nothing. Okay, I'm waiting. Eight days later, you might still be waiting. Not that God doesn't speak. But he understands what we're like. I learn by watching, not by waiting. I don't learn that much in silence. Some people do. But I learn by watching. And when I watch something that I think is really good, I imitate. I am a proud imitator of many great believers in Jesus Christ. But the good news is, is it doesn't stop there. And so it says at the end of at, at verse 7, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And it goes on in verses 8 through 10. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And how you wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us. So the fact that they were willing to imitate Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And and, and the fact that they imitated them very well has had an effect. It's had an effect in that they're the best representatives of the gospel in that town and maybe also in the region because their story goes out to others. Now, that means as Paul goes to a new town, he says, I want to plant a church. And he says, I want to leave you an example of a good church. I want to tell you about these, 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 uh, these brand new Christians in Thessalonica. And they go, well, we know that story. Well, wait a minute. That's a key story. you you got to sit and listen to it. I don't have a message if you don't let me tell that story. Well, we already know it. So let us tell you what happened there. That's the effect. There is an impactful story going on. And here's the two takeaways from that story. First of all, they place their faith in Jesus. They had a faith in Jesus that caused them, secondly, to turn from their idols and to serve the living and true God 
as they follow their son and wait for his return. Very simple. I mean, the story gets down to just a couple things. We placed our faith in Jesus, and, and, and then because we knew who Jesus was, we realized we were worshiping false gods, so we got to let them go. And everything else that's about their story, their endurance, their persecution, the teasing that went on, the fact that they were isolated in their community, that's just all of placing your faith in Jesus. There's always a cost. That's just human nature. When you were worshiping idols with idol worshipers, they don't appreciate you no longer worshiping idols with them. Where's Harry? Oh, I... It's following this guy named Jesus. Oh, we were going out for a drink tonight. Right after worship. Oh, great. Uh, He's acting like he's better than us. Those people that were a part of your past, they feel judged. They feel like you cast them off. They feel like you're coming across holier than thou. And you know what? You are. Just don't come across that way. They feel like they've lost a friend, so they often strike back with gossip and slander and persecution. It's a high price to pay. It was for these people as they decided to follow Jesus. But remember, what we're talking about is that God uses very uh, very normal human ways, and, and, and he's an amazing God. He often does the miraculous But he doesn't always do the miraculous. He uses his Holy Spirit to bring about transformation in your life. And often it's by the people that you find yourself with who are followers of Jesus Christ before you. That's called disciple making. And it's God's plan. Yes, does he break in uh, supernaturally from time to time? Yes, he does. But God's usual plan is followers of Jesus Christ make new followers of Jesus Christ. They do it by words. They do it by example. Is God great or what? It's just that he puts a little responsibility on you. Now, who was the best-looking, best-speaking, most charismatic leader of the church in Thessalonica? Got a name? Anybody got a got a name? Thessalonians only has well, I'm sorry, Thessalonians has no names in it of the believers in Thessalonica. Not one. Now we can go back to Jason in Acts chapter seventeen, but not one. This model church was produced by a bunch of no name nothings who just decided they would follow Jesus faithfully. And it didn't matter on this earth whether they were honored or not. So we have the name Jason, but we have this great idea that the Holy Spirit was involved. There are no other names mentioned about their church, but this we do know. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. That's what they'll be known for. And when it gets down to it, that's what the church will be known for. You follow Jesus, and the evidence is your faith, hope, and love.
Let's pray. Almighty God. If we walk around Bergen Park Church without name tags, it sort of hurts us socially, but it doesn't necessarily do any damage spiritually. We know how hard it is to remember names, all of us introverts. But we can remember how we were loved. We can remember, and you remember, when people show up because there's a need. Lord, you'll reward those people as you put together a story at Bergen Park Church. And it's okay that it's a story of no names. In fact, it might be better. It's just a follower of Jesus Christ influencing other followers of Jesus Christ. And for that, we give you thanks. And all of God's people said,